Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Well, the rule, you know, the main rule that no one can dodge is mortality. I mean, that's never changing. Nobody gets out alive, right? And I think that loss, losing a person you love, particularly, you know, a baby or a child where it's just not in the natural order of things. So we think, I mean, you know, what is the natural order of things? I mean, it was, it was nature. It felt like a crime against nature that I lost my son, but actually was nature herself. Anyway, I think that those experiences can sort of rejigger what we imagine to be possible and and sort of it's a preview of mortality it's a pre you know it's a it's a reminder that nature is in control and that there's no arguing back like it's incontestable and it's just not it's not something you can negotiate that's the way it's going to be but i also as i said earlier especially with women but in general with all people having the freedom to look at a situation to look at established conventions or laws or rules and have an open mind about them. That is, you know, an enormous engine for possibility and and positive change, you know, and a move towards social justice. In psychoanalysis, nothing is true except the exaggerations. The intriguing words of German philosopher, writer and social critic Theodore Adorno from his 1951 book, Minima Moralia. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Does everything happen for a reason? And is there a lesson in everything? Well, tonight in Talking Books, we're going to unpack those questions with two unique and talented writers. One an Englishman, the other an American. Writers of tremendous passion, gusto and instinct. Ariel Levy talks the rules do not apply and her remarkable journey through grief and suffering. And Tim Parks explores the nature of crisis and separation as teased out in his entertaining new read, In Extremis, published by Harville Secker. This is a show about loving, losing and letting go. But first, it's the decisions you can't take that make you wonder who you are despair sometimes. The provocative words of British novelist, translator and author Tim Parks from his 28th book, In Extremis. Well, my name's Tim Parks. Um, 62 years old now, alas, born uh, in Manchester, emigrated, I think you could say, to Italy when I was 25, so I've been here more than, more than 35 years now. Uh, I'm a bubble novelist, I think. Uh, I also write essays. I write frequently for the London Review, the New York Review. I've written non-fiction books about Italy. Perhaps most people know me by books like Italian Neighbours and Italian Education. also translated a number of of uh, quite big Italian authors, uh, Alberto Moravia, Italo Calvino, Machiavelli even. And I teach at the university. I teach translation at the university in Milan. My most recent novel is called In Extremis. And uh, as you might understand, it's about the end of a life and about big changes at the end of a life. 
So I'm going to read you a little, a little passage where our hero, Thomas, who is the narrator of the story, is thinking about when his mother talked to him about the funeral arrangement she was going to make. In fact, the whole novel revolves around the death of Thomas's mother and uh, the big changes in his life that this uh, brings about. I just want you to know, Thomas, she had said, that I've made arrangements for my funeral so that you children will not have to pay. It was an act of generosity. She had got a distasteful practical duty out of the way to save others, we children, the trouble. You will find all the papers in the first drawer under the bookshelf, she said. But of course it was something more than an act of generosity. It was also a bid for control. She, my mother, would be the one to decide what happened to her body, what kind of funeral she would have, not her children. It will be very simple, she explained that evening. She had paid for the coffin and for the cars to take everybody to church. It was only a few hundred yards. The funeral ceremony, too, she said, had already been written. That is, she had written it. And it would be extremely simple. Rather than flowers, people were to make an equivalent donation to charity. And in this way, her death would be of benefit to others, though not, of course, to the florists, who I suppose rely pretty heavily on funerals to make a living in these hard times. After the funeral, she said, she was to be cremated, as father had been, and as with father, there must be no memorial, no urn, no rose tree, no plaque with words. The ashes were to be scattered, she said, where she did not mind. That's up to you, she finished. She looked at me softly, but also with the satisfaction of someone who has acted with admirable resolve and for the best. She knew what was right. That can be your decision, she said. I heard a you plural at the time, you children. But later, thinking back, it would come to me she actually meant you, Thomas. You, Thomas, will decide where to scatter my ashes. In which case the sense was, as would ultimately emerge, and that, dear Thomas, will be your one and only decision with regard to me and my decease. For otherwise, you have no part to play. You are excluded. Really well done on the novel, Tim. I have to say it's a very curious read. I was laughing my head off, asking myself lots of funny, weird questions. And it presents such a ranging, such ranging scenarios. I think that um, so many different types of readers will really enjoy it. It got me thinking as I was progressing through the book. Do you agree that to some extent we all tell ourselves lies, that we're not fully honest with ourselves, that we all walk and breathe through life with certain little little lies about ourselves that we're quite keen on hanging on to? Well, I don't know. I don't know about the word lies. Uh, we all have different narratives, that's for sure. Some people are more aware of others than others that maybe they're twisting things a little. And sometimes it's honestly impossible to know who has the correct version of an event since there are no other witnesses around uh, to let us know. Certainly in this case, the moment of death for someone like Thomas's mother, who is an extremely religious evangelical person, is a big moment of truth, uh, obviously. Christianity tends to push an enormous meaning onto the moment of death, the moment when you really do or don't believe, uh, and so on. 
And it's clear that this puts a huge stress on her and also a stress on other members of the family who've, who've all related to her in completely different ways. Well, do you think it's possible to live without a tight self-narrative on your life and who you are and what you are and what your story is? Do you think that whether you can get a lot of therapy or whatever you can do, that you can move out of that tight grip of our own self-narrative? Well, you know, I think therapy tends to try to alter your self-narrative, like you're in a self-narrative that's really not helpful to you. You, you know, you imagine that there is no meaning beyond your marriage uh, and your marriage is clearly meaningless or... You, you know, you you imagine that you're a failure and you always will be and, and you go to therapy and, and, and very delicately and intelligently, somebody perhaps helps you to, to, to start thinking about life and giving yourself a different self-narrative. Whether you can live without a self-narrative, simply aware uh, of what you're doing and what your life has been without actually sort of fitting it into a road that's going somewhere is a hugely interesting question that, you know, that I've asked myself, funnily enough, an enormous amount. I, I remember quite intense debates with friends about this question. Clearly, if you, if you move towards something like Buddhism, there is a whole line of thought that would invite you away from the self-narrative. But usually the Western person going towards Buddhism sees that as his self-narrative, you know, I'm going towards Buddhism. Yeah, it struck me, Thomas, our narrator, he's very self-absorbed and he's also very stuck within his story, whether it's in relation to his relationship with his parents, his brother and his sister, and also with his ex-wife and, and his children. And um, it struck me he could do a lot with a bit of heavy meditation and a bit of silence in his life. He needed his, his mind to be calmed in some way. Well, he, he does actually practice a form of relaxation, yeah. which uh, which unfortunately has kind of ceased to function at this moment of, of crisis in his life. Yeah, is he, is he more self-absorbed than most people at a critical moment like this, where the marriage is finally, as it were, over, he has a new relationship, but now he goes back to his his family and the children know, don't know anything about the new relationship and that. The mother is dying and draws him back towards the world which he tries to have left. Uh, these are obviously moments when uh, when some kind of radical uh, final decision has to be taken. It does seem to me that at the end of the book, I uh, don't want to give the whole story away, but, but there is a kind of feeling that, that, uh, that some of this can be left behind. I'm just wondering, how would you describe In Extremis? Because it's a novel about parenthood and responsibility and duty, but it's also a novel about grief and isolation, and it's a lot. Of, it's about a lot of different things. So, what were the questions maybe that you were asking yourself, and what type of book did you want to write? You know, I think is it really up to me to describe the book? I, obviously, when I start to write a book uh, these days, especially when when I want it to be something as good as ever I could do, I really, I really don't want it to be easily describable. You know, I mean, I'm really trying to think of. How can we use this form to do something that, that feels different to the reader, that they say, well, I haven't quite been there before, you know? The book's very much about about the relationship with your body, the self and the body. Like the body's obsessively throughout the book because the character himself has clearly got all kinds of, of chronic problems. Uh, the mother's dying and so on. The whole, the whole question of how the self is knitted to the body is at the centre of it and made very dramatic throughout it. But it, it's a book of, of enormous intensity and 
closeness to somebody who appears to be sinking into a very dangerous trap, um, and, and we wonder if he's going to get out of it in, in extremis. So I suppose in, in that regard, there is the traditional feeling that, that all this is, is heading somewhere that, that has to be resolved, as it were, before the end of this book. It's also a very funny novel and as I said in my introductions I was laughing my head off there are some very unexpected scenes in it where Thomas is uh, thinking about the big moments in his life and understanding what's happening and also coming to grips with his own sense of fate and whether God exists or not and it's um, blindingly funny. I'm just wondering did you mean to write some of the passages some of those intense passages with that kind of black comic value or did that just that's just what happened. No, I was very aware that, you know, nobody wants to read a book like this if it wasn't crackling with a certain amount of humour. And the character himself is redeemed, if we want, by a sort of dry humour that he has himself about about events, a sort of a sort of drastic irony towards what's going on. So yeah, I'm very aware that things are actually blacker when you when you can make them funny as well, you know? There's really not much time in the in the book for a sort of standard Angela's Ashes sentiment, if you want. It's very much tense and alive. I think one of the other things is that we all know that, you know, even when you're in some crisis situation, I don't know, you're going to the hospital where some awful, awful thing has happened and you come out and found they clamped your car or something, you know, or your mobile phone stops working at exactly the moment when emergency required it and so on and so forth. Or you receive... You know, you receive a call from some insurance agent trying to sell you something precisely at the moment, you know, you are waiting for the major call from, from from your lover or something. So, you know, life is a constant series of interruptions today from all kinds of absurd places. So I, I'm very aware of that in the book. Tom has some difficulties with his pelvic muscles and he gets this massage wand uh, from um, a Dr. Sharp, who's a character in, in the novel who I absolutely loved. The passages were hilarious and uh, very entertaining to read. Dr. Sharp has a unique philosophy in life and certainly on pain management and the relationship between pain, stress and anxiety. And he, he tells Tom at one stage that all personal pain comes from self-conflict. I'm just wondering, do you agree with that? Ah, but you know, it depends what we want to describe pain. You know, if if somebody gives me a sharp kick in in the street, as pain, and it's a conflict. But I do think that a lot of the uh, emotional pain that we go through, apart from straightforward grief, which is a very different form of pain from the pain of simply not knowing what to do or feeling that one's failed or, or feeling that one one will never understand uh, how to behave or something. I think these pains uh, very often do arise from conflict, yeah. And I certainly wanted to float that idea that a lot of physical pain comes out of inattention and conflict. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of this interview, you said, you said it seems our man could use a little medita- meditation or medication you know, um, and suggesting there that, in fact, he needs to move away from those inner conflicts that are causing him all kinds of trouble. He's clearly conflicted by this very powerful attachment to his mother and at the same time complete rejection of the evangelical world of his mother and and of all the kind of all the kind of proprieties that that has forced upon him in his life. I suppose we all live with a degree of shame and guilt whether it's to do with our family and our parents or other stuff that's happened, breakups and relationships. I'm not sure we all do. 
Well, some I, people I, feel I, it I, differently, I, do they? Well, I know, I know people. I know people have said to me, I don't know what guilt really means, you know. So, I mean, maybe in Ireland uh, you all do, but, but maybe, in, maybe in other places they don't all feel like that. Certainly, I was brought up to feel guilty about more or less everything immediately. You know, I come from a very, very religious family. And, uh, you know, guilt was just in the air. The air was thick with it. It was, uh, it was the only way to live, really, was, was feeling slightly guilty, you know. Thomas asks himself um, an interesting question pretty much at the start of the novel. He asks, how much should one shop around when one's mother is dying? And um, I thought it was very funny because um, I actually shopped around uh, when my father died and made the funeral arrangement and went and selected the coven and so on. But I'm just wondering, did you base that on your own experience or how did you go about that? Because dealing with a, a parent that is dying can be very tricky, but it also brings up some financial issues between a family. And these things can be rather complex. Yeah, actually, in the book, the moment is that he's having to choose a flight to fly immediately uh, to where he's just been told that his mother is dying, although he's not quite sure that that she really is dying because he doesn't know if his sister is actually uh, on the ball about that. But in any event, uh, so he has to choose a flight and and then looking at the vastly different prices of the various flights, you know, how much does it actually matter that you're present for that last two hours or so? For example, if you were flying and the flight costs, I don't know, 2,000 euros, or would you still do it, you know? So he does let that question float through his head, but only for a moment. I think we're so used to living in, and understandably, in a whole series of relative values, and we price everything obsessively, that when all of a sudden it, it becomes clear to you that that this is really it and and that this is actually a major moment in your life. But, but for example, there's a moment later when, when Thomas doesn't really know whether his mother's going to die or not, and he has to go to a conference two days later, and he can't decide whether to cancel the conference or not or to try and go and whether... You know, and, and he talks to the nurse, and and the nurse just says, you know, this is actually an important moment. And, and for the first moment, it, it really... It really comes home to him that that actually you, you can drop your normal schedule when when your mum's dying, you know. But some people at moments of crisis can make, um, I suppose, best way to put it, delay and make delays in their responses. That they can fail to respond in a way that you would expect, and sometimes it takes a while for things, important scenarios, to kick in. And some people actually either say or do all the wrong things in those situations. Yeah, yeah, and then regret it later. In in certainly in, in this book, with a there are three a sister and two brothers, and one of the brothers, Thomas's brother, uh, simply doesn't want to believe that it's ever going to happen, and this actually causes the others almost almost to want it to happen to prove to the other guy, you know, to prove to the other brother that that it's really serious, so that you start to get a strange almost dynamic of competition between the brothers over the issue of, of how ill the mother is, uh, that clearly has more to do with the relationship between the brothers than the actual, you know, uh, physical condition of the mother. Uh, there's a certain amount of comedy there that, that, that comes out 
but I hope it's all believable as well. Yeah, you developed that aspect of the story very, very well in how um, both brothers and their sister, how they look at what their duty of care is to their mother as as she's dying and, you know, what is the right thing to do. All three personalities look at their responsibilities quite differently. Uh, One is way more practical than the other two. But I thought it was very interesting that the, the older brother doesn't feel that it maybe he needs to go to his mother's funeral and fly all the way over from California. I thought that was a very interesting take and a very interesting exploration. So can you tell me about that? When the mother dies and Thomas, Thomas asks his brother whether, whether he's coming, coming from California, the brother says, no, there's really no point in coming for, for a funeral. And for reasons that Thomas doesn't understand, this this throws Thomas into a huge crisis. He simply can't believe that his brother is is not going to be there. And it's clear that for Thomas, this is a moment when the the family might finally appear to really exist. This has been a very divided family, and when they might, all three of them, actually stand together. And so his brother's failure to, to do that plunges him into a crisis that he really can't understand himself. Uh, and he becomes so insistent that the brother does agree to come, but, but to come so briefly uh, and such a long way that, it, that it's almost an act of insanity to come from California to the UK for, for less than 48 hours. And curiously, it's to the sister that, that he says that he's going to come uh, and not to the brother with whom theoretically he's more intimate. There's a whole feeling, uh, and I've noticed this with, with deaths in families, that the sibling relationships become, uh, suddenly everybody becomes aware how complex they are. Very strained, but, but also also in a way, there is a hope for, for a moment, almost beautiful re, recontacting between, uh, it doesn't last very long, but there is a sense that base has been touched, as it were. Although they remain very divided, the funeral is a moment of intense division between the three of them. I was very interested in how you uh, presented Tom's struggles with actually whether he would view his mum's corpse or not. And he develops a range of different excuses throughout. After she dies, he goes away to um, another uh, conference and then he comes back again and then his children come along. But he still manages to question whether he should do that or not. Is that something that you personally struggled with in your own life or is it just something that you wanted to explore? The whole question of seeing, it, it, you could say the whole book is, is framed in, in this question of whether to see or not to see his mother's corpse. And the reasons for that go right to the heart of their relationship about, about what the body is as she sees it and what the body is uh, as, as he sees it. And also uh, the fact that she, who never wore any lipstick or any makeup and refused all cosmetics of any kind, has been against her will embalmed, something that she she clearly hadn't wanted, but but that for all kinds of practical reasons has happened. And and Thomas, who's always had a problem seeing his mother anyway, just uh, just doesn't know whether to go there or not. Into that, I threw I threw an incident which was which was more more personal to me, which was when when my father died and I went to a funeral parlor to see his body, it was about six or seven days after he died and immediately before the funeral, and he hadn't been embalmed. And the undertaker just looked me in the eyes. I was about, I think I was 24 at the time, and just said, Mr. Parks, uh, you do not want to see your father's body, you know? 
And I kind of, like, you know, as an older man, it was, I was like a student. I, I just sort of accepted, you know, oh, yes, he's right. Uh, later, I, I regretted it. You know, I thought, well, I knew perfectly well that it wasn't going to be a handsome sight, you know. Um, so it is a perplexing thing, this whole question of the viewing of the body and, and, and above all, this embalming of the body to make it... I did see an embalmed body rather recently, and it was so clearly, so clearly a doll uh, that, that perhaps it would have been, uh, perhaps it would have been more respectful of us not to see it. Yeah, it, it got me thinking. All right, that we tidy up our grief and the and our deaths in society uh, in some ways that we hide it all, and whether it's embalming as you developed in 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 the novel or how we go about the whole ritual of death now, it's all at a distance, really, isn't it? Well, uh, at the end of the book, they go to the crematorium for the final ceremony. And uh, Thomas remembers, you know, when in the when in the past his father was cremated, seeing seeing the smoke go up over the over the crematorium, only to discover that now they don't actually burn the corpse immediately, so that the relatives won't have the upset of seeing the smoke go up, which you know, so. The corpse kind of simply disappears. It doesn't even go into a grave. It, it's simply gone. When you compare that with India, where you, you can walk around even a big city like Delhi and go into the crematorium areas and, and people are, are, are actually watching their relatives' bodies uh, being burned, you can see that we certainly have major issues with, with accepting you know, our mortal destiny, as it were. Tom says at one stage, mother was a place as much as a person. Mother was a planet. She had gravity. I thought that was beautiful, but it also presented a range of questions on, you know, the force of gravity on all of us. Mm. Can you talk me through that? Well, I think, you know, people in places, if you think, think, think of the room that your mother and parents live in, whatever, uh, their, their sitting room, and how that changes when, when they go, uh, even when a person's just absent, but when somebody dies, all those objects around them are, are suddenly meaningless. It's as if a center had been removed and all these objects now have, have no longer a center of gravity that, that sort of gives them any meaning. And mother's world, which is mother, like mother, mother is not simply this, this body and this, it is all these objects she's collected around her and which she lives among and which give give sense to her world and which create a huge sense of security even in midlife for, for her son. Uh, and when she's gone, they're, they're suddenly completely meaningless. So people do, people particularly who live for a long time in one place, do kind of gather a sort of, a sort of weight about themselves, a sort of, sort of seriousness uh, that, that can be very attractive and very, very secure, but also entrapping, obviously. You must have enjoyed writing about Thomas, though, because in a lot of ways he's a very well-rounded guy because he's aware of it. While he's quite self-absorbed, he's also aware of his vices, his faults, and he's aware that he has screwed up in parts and he knows, he recognises that he isn't perfect, which is, which, is always, um, which, is, which is always helpful, I suppose. He says at one stage, a world of respectable ordered lives could hardly exist without pornography, without affairs. It may not be a very palatable truth, but there is a point to that, isn't there? Really, because there's no such thing as a perfect life and none of us can live in a straitjacket. Well, you know, if we get into the whole sociology of this, 
I remember reading Schopenhauer uh, when I was much younger, where he says, you know, marriage can't exist without, without the middle class marriage can't exist without prostitution to support it. You know, and you think, well, as a young man, you think, well, that's heavy stuff. But later on in life, you do begin to realise that a, a lot of a lot of apparently stable relationships uh, depend on a whole series of other other uh, arrangements, as it were. In, in, in the book in particular, in in this kind of very large subplot in the book, Thomas is put in contact again with an, with an old friend who's very much keeping a long, long relationship alive by, by having a series of other relationships on the side. And, and that has finally reached a point where it's no longer sustainable. In, in the book, there are a lot of things that are, are suddenly no longer sustainable. Um, at the centre, obviously, the mother's, the mother's death and the marriage of, uh, of our hero Thomas, which, which is already kind of over, but, but the wife is still trying to keep it alive. And then this, this other marriage, which in a very different way is going to pieces. So, yeah, you know, what, what does somebody do if they're in a marriage to which, to which they feel... They feel a great affection and a fidelity and so on and so forth, but they, you know, they have all kinds of sexual needs that aren't being perhaps met. I don't know. What do they do about that? There are all kinds of solutions. Last question for you, Tim. Um, I'm just wondering, do we learn from our parents' uh, death? And do you think we should ask those types of questions of ourselves? Do you think it's helpful to look at maybe death as a, p- a form of learning and to use that <laughs> through our lived experience of life? We can learn or not learn from from anything. You know, we can decide not to learn from our parents' death at all, or, or it can be a a moment of of great revelation for us. In this particular case, I think the actual moment of death, which which I spent really an awful long time uh, writing and rewriting and thinking about, is a moment of collective learning for for all the people in the family about the absolute simplicity of the, of the mortality of it, the, the absolute absence of any metaphysical content. Also, there's a feeling in this that, 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 that Thomas does learn the futility of trying to keep some kind of control, even at the moment of death. There's something terribly pathetic about the obsession of organizing your funeral exactly as you want it and, and trying to organize what happens after you die exactly as, as you want it, since you'll actually be dead. Um, so, yeah, of course we can. Of course we can learn from all, all, all these things, and of course, of course it can be hard. But uh, you know, one can also learn from somebody else's resourcefulness and cheerfulness in, in in their in their illness, which which is a remarkable quality. And as a matter of interest, where do you think we go when we die? Yeah, I do tend to believe that that. That we are that we're material and 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 dissolved, as it were. I I, uh, I I don't think we go anywhere at all. The light the light goes out, uh, as far as as far as I'm concerned. But I don't I don't think about that negatively in any way. I mean, I'll I'll be back in the place I was before I was born, as it were. It's really not an issue. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. My job is to interpret and to communicate my interpretation persuasively to other people. The idea that in life, unlike in writing, the drive to analyse and influence might be something worth relinquishing was to me a revelation. 
So writes Ariel Levy in her candid, intense and deeply affecting memoir, The Rules Do Not Apply, published by Little Brown. Well, this week I had the very great pleasure of talking to Ariel from her home in New York. Hi, my name is Ariel Levy. I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine, um, where I've worked for almost a decade. I write investigative pieces, essays, and very frequently I write profiles of exceptional women, um, women living unconventional lives. And I'm author of two books, Female Chauvinist Pigs, which came out 10 years ago. And just recently, I published my memoir, The Rules Do Not Apply, which is based on an essay called Thanksgiving in Mongolia that I wrote for The New Yorker, which won the National Magazine Award. And The Rules Do Not Apply is about how I got to a place in life where I lost my son and my spouse and my house in a two-month period when I was 38 years old. And it's about how I got there, and it's about how those experiences transform my life and transform my view of the world. And in a larger way, it's about the fundamental human conflict, the desire on the one hand for adventure and novelty and stimulation on the one hand, and intimacy and safety and domesticity on the other. And it's about that conflict and how we resolve it as humans, but particularly as women. Really well done on the book, Ariel. It is um, a very upfront and raw read, I have to say, and an exceptional one at that. Some very unexpected spots in it and a very powerful narrative. So I have to say hats off to you in that. I might throw you a quote, actually, from the memoir, and it's from Mike Huckabee. He, you met him on uh, one of your journalistic endeavours, and he said to you, character yeah. is who you are when nobody else is looking. Just wondering, do you agree with that? I really do. I mean, I think it's one of the very few things I agree with him about. And it's funny because Mike Huckabee was this guy who, you know, I disagreed with him about everything politically. I don't know how well known he is in Ireland, but he, he's a conservative American politician who's, who, you know, in the classic evangelical Christian conservative mode and big on marriage and family, very anti-gay, very, you know, very conservative traditional stuff. I mean, I sort of lost all faith with him, though, because he then he backed Trump. I mean, I didn't agree with him about any of that, but I felt like at least he had an internally consistent worldview. But then he backed Trump, and then it just seemed like, oh, God, the whole thing's pathetic. But anyway, the point is, he said that to me, and even though I thought, you know, I disagreed with him about just about everything, um, he wrote that in one of his books, actually, he didn't say it to me. I mean, he says all his things all the time, so he probably said it to me also. And he said that at a time when I was having an affair, that is my one real regret in life. And it just struck me. It just struck me as really true that, that you know, it's not what you can get away with. It's who are you, really? And that was meaningful to me. At the closing chapter of The Rules Do Not Apply, you write, life is uncooperative and impartial. And it got me thinking on the approach to writing and writing a memoir. Do you learn a lot about yourself when you actually put your own personal truths down on paper? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't think I would have been able to write the book had I not been thinking about all these things, you know? So I don't know that I learned a lot about myself. I mean, I think I had been, I'd gone through a very intense series of events. I had lost my son and my spouse and my house in a two-month period when I was 38. And all, and all that loss made me think a lot about who I was and who I wanted to be. I, I'm not sure writing the book did it. 
How difficult was it for you, though, Ariel, to write about your miscarriage? It's such a personal experience, such an intimate experience. And it's something that a lot of women don't actually open up a lot about. Well, you know, writing is an intimate experience for me. So writing about all the things in the book, you know, was, I mean, it was, it was difficult insofar as writing is, is challenging always. But in terms of writing about private things, the act of writing is just me alone with my computer, isn't it? So that's not difficult. It's sometimes difficult talking about the book because that is public and that is something I do with people that I've just met. That, that can be difficult. But writing it wasn't difficult for those reasons. I mean, the thing is that the essay that this book is based on, which was called Thanksgiving in Mongolia, and it ran in The New Yorker, and it really was quite focused just on that when I was in Mongolia on a reporting assignment when I was five months pregnant and I went into labor in my hotel room and gave birth to my son. And, you know, for 10 minutes, I was somebody's mother. And writing about that was just the essay, not, not this book, but just the essay was, was effortless. That essay just kind of fell out of my fingers. And I didn't feel ashamed at all. In fact, I felt proud. I felt proud of my son. Um, I think that one of the experiences that, people have with parenthood that, you know, things common across cultures is people gaze at their children and just sort of marvel at who they've made. And that's, that's what I was able to do for 10 minutes, and it wasn't enough. So writing about it was a way of doing that, was a way of marveling and gazing at the person I had made who only I ever saw alive. Do you think it's helpful to look at life as some form of lesson, hard or otherwise, that that can console us in ways when we were dealing with different types of pain and suffering? I suppose, I mean, I suppose, you know, that's what writing is, trying to make meaning out of things. And that's what I do. I mean, that's what I've done with my time for 20 years. And I think that in writing, you know, I, I think that I had grown accustomed to the power of authorial control. And there's this skill set in writing that, you know, serves you, which is you have to be in charge of what's on the page. I always tell my students, like, you're driving this car. Like, don't, don't let this piece of writing drive you. You are the only one making these decisions, so take control. I mean, that's writing. And also writing is observing and analyzing and trying to persuade other people of your interpretation on the page. And these experiences made me think that that set of skills was not useful to me in life, that I didn't want to try to persuade anyone or analyze situations that were... I mean, trying to accept something that you find unacceptable, like your baby dying. I mean, I woke up every day for a long time and just thought, this is not acceptable. I don't agree to this reality. And, you know, obviously, eventually you realize that's futile and that whether you accept it or not, this is reality and you have to find a way to live with it. So... The skill set of trying to analyze the situation and argue back was not helping me. And the, the sense of I could control the story, that wasn't helping me either. You write to become a mother, I feared, was to relinquish your status as a protagonist of your own life. In many ways, this trip was to be the wildest possible trip. I would be the explorer, not the mummy. 
you travelled to Mongolia. I think it was about uh, you were nearly five months pregnant, and some of your friends challenged you at the time, and you felt that um, you 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 consulted your doctors, and your doctors had told you that it actually was safe, and you you felt a very a, a driving force to almost um, you know it was a kind of a homage to your career in some ways. Do you think a lot of women when they're pregnant find it difficult balancing the the duties or the you know the how to kind of conform well in a pregnancy and then how to kind of get on with the normal way of life do you think that can be very difficult well i mean i I think it's you know you have to change your eating habits and drinking habits which all of which i found sort of fun i mean i sort of i don't know so i I was very excited by the time i got pregnant you know the, the sentence you were reading about you know being a mother i feared was to relinquish the status as protagonist of your own life and your past would calcify in front of you. That was describing my state of mind when I was like 30 and I was very afraid of it. By the time I was 37 when I got pregnant, I was not ambivalent. I had I felt that I had done enough, I'd had enough adventures of that sort and I wanted to have a new adventure and be someone's mother and I was very excited to put someone else in front of me. So not drinking, eating the right food, all that, you know, taking the pills, I mean, it, the vitamins. I, was, I thought it was fun. I didn't, I was ready for all that. And, you know, I felt that my friends who said, you know, you shouldn't go to Mon- Mongolia pregnant, I just felt they were being irrational and unscientific. And, in fact, they were. You know, I would have had that miscarriage anywhere in the world. You, if you're having a placental abruption, which is what I had, you're going to have it, and there's nothing to be done. You're out of luck. So the only reason, I mean, the reason they tell, it's not that I think a lot of people think, and a lot of people had the profound insensitivity to suggest to me that it was cabin pressure, you know, air travel, something like that is what caused my miscarriage. Well, that's just not science. That's not the way it works. The reason that they don't want you to fly in your third trimester, which I wasn't in yet, was that God forbid you had a miscarriage on a plane, that would be absolutely horrible. And had that happened to me, it would have been absolutely horrible if all this had happened on a plane. I mean, it was horrible anyway, but it it would have been horrible in a very different way. So the fact of the matter is, I mean, I don't regret going on that trip. You know, I was going to lose my son anywhere. I mean, that was the most transformative experience of my life, you know. So I, I don't know that I would rather have had my 10 minutes with my son in a hospital in New York City. I don't think I would have. I think having it alone with him in my hotel in Mongolia, I felt really sacred. How difficult was it to write about Lucy, your ex-partner and wife? You describe her as uh, that she had the radiant decency of a sunflower and that you, you say somewhere in the memoir you felt that this was somebody you could feel normal with, content with, blessed with and you said that you could be cleaned by her goodness. So I imagine it would have been very difficult for you to write about the subsequent breakup in your relationship. Well, you know, what part of what I was doing was taking stock of what I had done to destroy the marriage. And, you know, my former spouse was an alcoholic. And I think it's very easy to imagine that sort of the beginning and the end of it, you know, that if someone's an addict and they've had a lot of drama around that, which she certainly did. And it's it's extremely painful and difficult to be married to an addict or to be the parent of an addict or the child of an addict. I mean, it's just a very difficult thing to live with because, the addict doesn't want to be an addict any more than you want him or her to. So there's no one to appeal to. I mean, it's just this, this other thing in your house um, 
that you have no recourse against, which is extremely difficult and can make you feel very crazy. Anyway, that is easy to say, you know, it's sort of the beginning and the end of it. But it isn't. I mean, I did all sorts of things wrong in that marriage that contributed to it falling apart. And I wanted to take stock of those on the page. And yeah, sometimes that was difficult. Yeah, absolutely. You write about the affair with um, Jim. She was formerly Jen. It's very, very interesting. You write, you have an affair to get for yourself what you wish you would come from, from the person you love the most. And then you have broken her heart and she can never give you any of it again. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I was that age, when I had that affair, I was 35, I think in some deranged way that I'm not justifying this. It's just a fact that part of what was going on in my head was that I actually thought, okay, if I can't get my needs met in this marriage, which I, which I felt that I couldn't. I mean, part of it was that my spouse had this other relationship going on with alcohol that was stealing her, you know, stealing her attention. I mean, the addicts are really enslaved. They've got this distraction all the time. And so it can be very lonely to be married to someone who's always distracted by something else. Anyway, I, at some deranged level, thought, okay, you know, I, I love myself. I don't want to break up. So I'm going to get my needs met elsewhere. And it's going to enable me to stay in the marriage. Well, that was pretty stupid. But that's what I thought at the time. How has your grief changed you, Ariel, in terms of how has it made you look at life? Has it made you look at life a bit differently, do you think, in human relationships, in terms of how you, how it all, how everything shapes up? Do you think it's changed you fundamentally as a person? I certainly think it's changed me. I mean, I don't know about fundamentally, but it's it's definitely changed me. Yeah, because I think that before all these experiences, my attitude was essentially, I just had a lot of greed for experience, not all of which I think is bad. I mean, I think women have been told not to feel that way, not to indulge in those feelings since time immemorial. So I think, you know, Amelia Earhart once wrote in a letter to her husband, I want to do it because I want to do it women must try to do things as men as tried. And I think that that's true. So I don't completely want to disavow greed for experience in a woman. I think it can be a very constructive and liberatory thing. However, I think that between that greed for experience and what we were talking about earlier, sort of longstanding, how to put this, I was accustomed to authorial control. You know, I was accustomed to being in charge of a storyline and having everything fall away all at once liberated me from the illusion of control. And I can't explain it. It's just this sort of driving force that was this greed for experience. I mean, maybe some of that is just age. Maybe it's not about grief. Maybe it's about being 42 years old and, you know, just being older. But, um... I don't feel driven by that in the same way anymore. I feel much more open, much more sort of able to float along in a way that I like. I mean, I like, I like the, I, like I said earlier, I would trade all this for my son to have lived. I would trade all this for a four-year-old boy, but that's not an option. So I try to value what, it, what all this has given me, and that is a different kind of openness. Earlier on in the memoir, you write, daring to think that the rules do not apply is a mark of a visionary. It's also a symptom of narcissism. 
now that you've written this memoir and you've possibly taken stock on all the different decisions that you've made and the dynamics within those relationships, where do you stand on how we all in some ways try and dodge the fact that we live by certain rules, whether we like it or not, and that we have to maybe somewhat be somewhat creative at times and colourful with the rules and, and move them around a bit, but that we all have to, in certain ways, conform to some whether we like it or not. How do you feel about that? Well, the rules, you know, the main rule that no one can dodge is mortality. I mean, that's never changing. Nobody gets out alive, right? And I think that loss, losing a person you love, particularly, you know, a baby or a child where it's just not in the natural order of things. So we think, I mean, you know, what is the natural order of things? I mean, it was, it was nature. It felt like a crime against nature that I lost my son, but actually was nature herself. Anyway, I think that those experiences can sort of rejigger what we imagine to be possible and, and sort of it's a preview of mortality. It's a pre, you know, it's a, it's a reminder that nature is in control and that there's no arguing back. Like it's incontestable and it's just not, it's not something you can negotiate. That's the way it's going to be. But I also, as I said earlier, especially with women, but in general, with all people, having the freedom to look at a situation, to look at established conventions or laws or rules, and have an open mind about them, that is, you know, an enormous engine for possibility and, and positive change, you know, and a move towards social justice. I wrote about this woman, Edith Windsor, for The New Yorker, who was the plaintiff in a Supreme Court case that overturned what we called the Defense of Marriage Act. So effectively, because of her actions, it, it started the cascade of events that made it so that same-sex marriage is legal in this country, which I consider to be a huge advance in our struggle for progress. I mean, the point is that what happened is her spouse of 40-plus years died, and she had to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes, and Edith Windsor at age 84 thought, no, this isn't fair. If my spouse had been a man who I'd been with for 40 years, who I'd cared for through a debilitating illness for a decade, you know, I would not be paying taxes. This isn't fair. The rules should not apply. I'm going to challenge them. So that's an example of someone being free-thinking and courageous in a way that had positive effects for the entire society that I live in, you know. So I'm in no way imagining that but the argument of this book is not everybody should behave and everyone should follow the rules. <laughs> it's, about, it's about the interplay between possibility and limits.
and that was American journalist and author Ariel Levy. The Rules Do Not Apply is published by Little Brown and retails for just under €21 in hardback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a very big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Lee Duncan on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with the frank and sentient words of Ariel Levy from her courageous memoir, The Rules Do Not Apply. I wanted what we all want, everything. We want a mate who feels like family and a lover who is exotic, surprising. We want to be youthful adventurers and middle-aged mothers. We want intimacy and autonomy, safety and stimulation, reassurance and novelty, coziness and trills, but we can't have it all. Wise words indeed. Good night. Talking Books, on News Talk 106 to 108.